Welcome to Premis Podcast. This is your host, Angelo Sophocleus. In this episode, I host Dr. Matthew Bennett, a lecturer of philosophy at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Bennett talks about the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche, explaining his concept of the Übermensch and his understanding of self-overcoming. Dr. Bennett further expands on Nietzsche's views on morality and analyzes the meaning of one of the most famous phrases in Nietzsche's works. God is dead and we have killed him. Dr. Matthew Bennett is currently a temporary lecturer with the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Cambridge and Director of Studies at Selwyn College. His interests include post-Kantian European philosophy, ethics and moral psychology and bioethics. Dr. Bennett completed his PhD on Nietzsche's philosophy of freedom at the University of Essex. Welcome everyone to episode number 20 of Premise Podcast. Today with me I have the pleasure to have Dr. Matt Bennett from the University of Cambridge. Matt, welcome to Premise Podcast. Thank you for inviting me, it's a pleasure. You're very welcome. So today we'll be talking about the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche, perhaps, not perhaps, certainly one of the most influential philosophers of all time. So Matt, what we can tell about Nietzsche as a philosopher and as a person? Um, So this is a really interesting place to start with Nietzsche because he was someone who has a very distinct way of approaching philosophy that mixes both philosophical questions and biographical questions together. I think one thing that I like to begin with when I'm teaching Nietzsche is to emphasize the extent to which Nietzsche will tend to avoid what we consider to be traditional philosophical questions and instead to focus focus less on philosophies and more on the philosopher more on the nature of the person who is making certain philosophical claims or asking certain philosophical questions. So to begin with, with Nietzsche, the person seems to be uh, particularly appropriate in this case. He was a 19th century German philosopher. He was, as you've just mentioned, uh, particularly influential uh, in a surprising variety, diverse array of philosophical traditions, not so much in his own lifetime, but in the 20th century. So you will find people referencing Nietzsche, um, both uh, agreeing with him and disagreeing with him in phenomenology, in um, political theory, in existentialism, in feminism, in uh, moral philosophy, and in very different parts of the world. Um, he is in some cases considered to be a continental philosopher, but um, over the last 30 to 40 years has been um, studied a lot more in Anglo-American departments within the English-speaking world of philosophy, and um, is now considered a foil by many, I think, in ethics and in other traditional areas of um, Anglo-American philosophy. With regards to his life, um, the I think one of the reasons why he has a very distinctive approach to philosophy is that he didn't in fact train as a, a philosopher uh, to begin with. And, and the only part of his life in which he was um, employed at a university, he was employed not as a philosopher, but as a philologist or a classicist. And this was his, this was his first passion um, in, in keeping with um, a 19th century German tradition. He was particularly interested in classical Greece. One of his um, sig- most significant teachers uh, before he became a professor of classics himself was Jakob Burkhardt. And they both shared this view that was, again, very common in uh, Germany at the time, that it would be possible within Europe to look back to the classical age of Greece as um, a model for um, great achievements within culture. And this would this was um, so, so Nietzsche was was trained as a philologist, as someone who was interested in questions of uh, cultural analysis of um, ancient Greece. And as I think we'll get onto, in particular the way that he analyzes modern European morality, Nietzsche would bring a 
philologist eye to questions of philosophy. Um, briefly, what I mean by that is that because he was first and foremost someone who was interested in historical developments, in cultures, and in the um, ways in which uh, philosophies and texts in classical Greece told us about the values that were held by the culture at the time, he would also bring something of that same socio-cultural analysis, cultural critique approach to his contemporaries and to contemporary philosophy and morality. Um, one other thing that is worth noting about him biographically, which I think also has a significant influence on his, his writing and his approach to philosophy, is that, and this is something that if people know anything about Nietzsche, they, they will probably know that towards the end of his life, well, the last 10 years or so of his life, he was um, completely unproductive um, in his work. Uh, he descended into a kind of delirium. Um, which was, according to many scholarly sources, now it's, there's a consensus around this just about that this was a, an effect of a tumor in um, behind his left eye um, that it's suspected he had for most of his life. So he's known for, um, to put it crudely, descending into a kind of madness towards the end of his life. And this is somewhat romanticized um, as if Nietzsche the philosopher um, became so obsessed with um, the significance of his work that he just sort of descended, worked himself into a kind of um, philosophically induced madness. But this is probably almost, this is almost certainly a romanticizing falsification of what um, really happened with him. But the way in which this really did influence his work is that that same um, physical ailment that led to him being in a um, near catatonic state for the last 10 years of his life also caused great physical pain for him through most of his productive uh, uh, writing life. He would, um, when he came to retire very early in his mid-20s from his academic position as a classicist, he did so because of his illness. He would suffer from very intense migraines, incredibly intense headaches, uh, nausea, vomiting, and at certain points in his life, um, he was writing the texts that we read today under real um, difficulty. He would have days where he would be unable to see for more than an hour or two at a time and would somehow be able to create what some people consider to be some of the most um, imaginative and intelligent works of um, philosophy, if we can call it philosophy, um, of uh, the whole of the history of European philosophy. Um, the reason why this is particularly influential for his work is that suffering and working through illness, overcoming struggle um, in particular, excuse me, overcoming difficulty is a consistent theme in his work. And it is something that he took very seriously. Uh, and I think it's probably fair to say that he was so interested in this and wrote about the overcoming, overcoming of suffering and how we respond to suffering so much because his own life was a life that was marked very significantly by physical suffering. Mm -hmm. Great. So following from, um, from what you last said, many people today, especially or even non-philosophers, see Nietzsche as a philosopher who wrote a lot on overcoming difficulties and um, many people use his writing and his philosophy today to uh, as a source of personal growth and personal development and this goes back to what he wrote about overcoming difficulties and overcoming suffering and specifically he he developed these terms uh, self-overcoming and the concept of uh, Ubermensch. So what can we say about the, the Superman, the Ubermensch, as Nietzsche termed it, and, and specifically about his philosophy of self-overcoming? Okay, great. Um, so I think I'd, I'd like to start answering that by thinking, first of all, how Nietzsche thinks of the value of overcoming anything um, before we consider... Um, first of all, how he would, how he writes about overcoming suffering and pain and difficulty in our lives. Second, how he thinks about self-overcoming, and then maybe think about, a bit about how that 
relates to um, Zarathustra, Zarathustra's doctrine of the Ubermensch. Um, so it's worth contextualizing what Nietzsche says about this in terms of his uh, broad appeal to the value of overcoming uh, resistance, of overcoming uh, difficulty, of rising to challenges that are um, the product of being resisted somehow by other people, by the world, um, or by things within oneself, which is how we get to self-overcoming. Um, one of the things that is a consistent theme in Nietzsche's work and, and a, res a critical response to his contemporary age is that he thinks that, for various reasons, he thinks that his contemporaries value contentment and um, the lack of pain and difficulty over everything else. That uh, And he sees this in uh, modern political movements, he sees it in modern morality, and he sees it in uh, modern philosophy. This is a problem for Nietzsche because he thinks that anything worth achieving is going to be achieved through struggle. Um, and sometimes there are suggestions in his work that he thinks that this is just um, a fact of anything that has intrinsic value, that you won't get to it um, unless you're having to overcome some kind of difficulty to get there. It is, this isn't something conceptually built into value. It's just, the, it's just a fact of human existence that um, we have really two options when it comes to trying to achieve something worthwhile. Either we give up on this altogether because we prefer to be um, safe and content and happy, but don't thereby achieve anything, or we try to... Um, look for something that's intrinsically worthwhile, great achievements, and they will um, only be achieved through uh, difficulty, strain, and, and, and pain. Um, at other times, he will suggest that there is something just intrinsically valuable to the process of overcoming resistance itself. However, however we take that, um, it's certainly the case that he thinks that um, cultures where struggle have been central to um, what is considered to be uh, a worthwhile life, what's considered to be intrinsically honorable or noble or um, uh, worthwhile. And again, he's going to associate that with certain uh, certain eras within classical Greece. Um, they are onto something that the modern age lacks, uh, according to Nietzsche. So if there's something intrinsically valuable about overcoming resistance and, and the uh, something intrinsically valuable about, uh, valuable about struggle, um, there are various different ways in which we can uh, find opportunities to um, indulge in that kind of a struggle. And Nietzsche seems to think that all of these are equally valuable. One would be um, a struggle against other people. And that could be a struggle between communities. It could be a struggle between nations. It could be a struggle between cultures. Or it could just simply be uh, a struggle between individuals. So, for example, in, in an early text that um, Nietzsche didn't publish in his lifetime, but he did, uh, uh, he, he wrote it um, in the 1870s and actually gifted it to um, a friend of his, Cosima Wagner, the um, perhaps known as the, the wife of Richard Wagner. Um, this is an essay entitled Homer's Contest. He wrote about how, um, again, it's certain points in, in Greek history, uh, the Greeks would, um, the Greeks had a culture that um, had a significant role for um, contestation between individual athletes, uh, between warriors, um, and between others to, to sort of demonstrate their, um, their prowess. Um, and that this kind of individual level contestation uh, is something that uh, allows them to exercise a capacity to overcome resistance from other people uh, and thereby cultivate their talents um, and uh, do something worthwhile. Now that's um, that's Nietzsche's way of thinking about the value of overcoming when we relate interpersonally, if you like. But he also thinks that there's a way in which we can um, exercise a similar kind of value of overcoming things with regards to ourselves in a reflexive form. Um, at times he also suggests that um, with a movement into the modern age, we have fewer opportunities to enter into a struggle and a competition with other people. Um, 
so his reason for thinking this seems to be that within the confines of a um, uh, of a civilized modern state, um, where actual combat between individuals and between groups of individuals um, is no longer made possible in the way that perhaps it once was. Um, it is, according to some traditions of political theory, the very purpose of the state is to make sure that people don't take up arms against one another. As a result of this, Nietzsche thinks that we don't then have the opportunity to um, overcome resistance in a kind of interpersonal battle with, uh, literally with other people, but that our tendencies to seek out opportunities to overcome resistance, to enter into some kind of struggle with things around us, that tendency doesn't go away within the confines of other state, has to, has to find an outlet of some kind. And so that is going to be um, turned inwards, according to Nietzsche, at least in some cases. For some of us, if we can't um, vent our um, aggression in a contest with other people and try to overcome their resistance, then we're going to turn that in towards ourselves. And this is how we get to, as you, you've asked, and it's taken me a while to get there, um, the concept of self-overcoming in Nietzsche. So the value of self-overcoming for Nietzsche is, is going to look similar to the, the reasons why he'll think it's valuable. It's going to look similar to the reasons why he thinks overcoming struggle in any form, whether it's reflexive or interpersonal, um, the same reasons. Um, in order to achieve something worthwhile, um, one has to go through a process of struggle to get there. What that looks like in terms of self-overcoming is going to be, for Nietzsche, a process of continually um, asking oneself whether uh, who I am and what I really value is something that is worth being and worth valuing, whether, whether I'm living my life in the right way. Self-overcoming is a process of continually asking oneself that question, uh, revising one's commitments, and trying to find ways of improving what it is um, that I'm doing with my life. Um, in Nietzsche's own case, I think it's fair to say that something like this is seen in the trajectory of his texts through his life. Um, he, if you like, practices what he preaches in this particular regard. His com philosophical commitments in his very early work change in some respects quite substantially um, compared with his later work. And so um, to pick one um, quite narrow example, but I think it illustrates it well. In Nietzsche's first published work, this was a book called The Birth of Tragedy. He wrote this in 1872. It is uh, a work of a philologist, a classicist. So again, at this time, he is still a, a professor of philology, and it's a study of the nature of Attic tragedy and the role that this played in Greek culture. But it is also a work that is designed to, again, as other uh, classicists at the time were doing, to encourage his German contemporaries to look to Greece as a paradigm for great cultural achievement. And tragedy, um, he thought for various reasons, w was uh, incredibly um, significant um, cultural achievement. His commitment at that time um, was partly to um, thinking that there was an opportunity for Germany to do what Greece had done with tragedy. And specifically, uh, he thought that in the work of Richard Wagner, um, Germany could revive the same kind of tragic insights that the Greeks had, um, and again, achieve its own um, level of great culture that would be on a par with the ancient Greeks. This changes dramatically in his later works uh, in a couple of ways. One is that he, very soon actually after publishing The Birth of Tragedy, um, becomes dissatisfied with Wagner, um, both um, personally and with regards to Wagner's work. Um, in short, in later work, he is incredibly critical of Wagner in a way that he certainly wasn't in 1872. And another way in which he departs quite substantially from his earlier commitments in that work is that he will come to think of the capacity for um, uh, the German nation to revive something of great worth like Greek culture um, he no longer thinks that that's possible in later work. And he's incredibly critical of German culture, his contemporaries, but he's also incredibly critical of German nationalism in later work. So self-overcoming we see in his work too. It is something that he encourages us to undertake, but also it seems that he himself 
was committed to doing this um, in his process of self-examining and changing what he was committed to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so with regards then to, you had also a question about the, the Ubermensch. Um, I think it's worth coming at that from a slightly different angle. So it's, it's worth saying with regards to the Ubermensch that um, although this is a concept within Nietzsche's work that is particularly popular, it's something that he's particularly well known for. It's it's jargonistic and sloganistic enough for people to remember it. But it isn't uh, a concept and a term that occurs very often in his work compared to some others that occur much more often. Um, and that would be terms such as, um, well, his immoralism, his critique of morality, um, and his treatment of power and the will to power, which perhaps we'll get we'll get on to. But nonetheless, the Ubermensch is um, a figure, um, a character, if you like, that is referred to in what Nietzsche considered when he wrote the book to be his greatest work. This is a book called Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Thus Spoke Zarathustra is a very different text to anything else Nietzsche wrote insofar as it is a much more literary text than anything else. It is a story of uh, what you might call a prophet that Nietzsche named, who Nietzsche named Zarathustra and his repeated attempts to explain his doctrines to, first of all, people within his local village who were not in a position to understand what Zarathustra had to teach him. Uh, Then his repeated attempts to find disciples, um, a more select group of people that might be in a better position to understand what Zarathustra had to teach. Um, And they too, um, he has a, uh, Zarathustra has an ambivalent relation to his disciples. Um, They don't always get it, let's put it that way. One of the things that Zarathustra is trying to teach to people who um, don't really understand him in the way that he wants them to is this doctrine of the Ubermensch, um, as he puts it. The Ubermensch is characterized in a few different ways by Zarathustra and thereby, we might say, by Nietzsche. But the link between self-overcoming and the Ubermensch seems to be there. So the Ubermensch is a figure who, among other things, is capable of undertaking this task of achieving things of greatness by self-overcoming, by understanding that in order to undertake uh, a task of great achievement, they're going to have to continually self-examine, self-revise, and improve themselves in this way. There are also other significant features of the Ubermensch that in some ways Zarathustra will emphasize more than um, the their capacity to, to self-overcome. And one that particularly stands out, and this relates to Zarathustra's frustrations with finding the right kind of disciples, one of the characteristics of the Ubermensch would be, the Ubermensch would be someone who doesn't follow in the footsteps of anybody else. And that is going to apply both to the way the Ubermensch relates to um, what Nietzsche will at other times describe as a, as a herd-minded society. They're not going to follow the norms that um, all of the people are following simply for the sake of doing so. But they're also not going to imitate what they have been taught by um, a great teacher such as Zarathustra. And thus to be a disciple of Zarathustra, one, according to Zarathustra, one will have to find one's own way to to ultimately not really do what Zarathustra has told you to do, to find um, a way of living that is unique and created only by you. That's what it would be to be the proper disciple of Zarathustra, but thereby also to be the Ubermensch. Good. So, so moving on to his views on morality, perhaps on one of the most famous phrases from Nietzsche's work is, God is dead and we have killed him. Mm-hmm. Now, this can be interpreted in a lot of ways, and because of this, I think it has been misinterpreted in a lot of ways as well. So, what did Nietzsche really mean by saying, God is dead, and we have killed him? So, this is the most famous statement of his atheism and his anti-Christianity. And it is the one that he's particularly well known for. There's a few things Nietzsche's particularly well known for. One is his atheism. What's worth noting about this is that that particular phrase, God is dead and we have killed him, 
uh, is when it's written by Nietzsche, at least in that form, it is not written in Nietzsche's own voice. And this is something that's particularly interesting, I think, about this phrase. So it appears in a passage that Nietzsche entitled The Madman in a work called The Gay Science. And in this passage, Nietzsche describes uh, a short tale of uh, a madman, as he calls him, who visits a village to declare to everyone that God is dead and to, in a way that somewhat foreshadows Zarathustra's attempts to explain to people uh, certain teachings that they're not in a position they, they are resisting understanding. Uh, the madman, too, will try to explain to those around him in the village that um, there are all kinds of horrible consequences of this event, uh, the death of God, that everyone around him finds just rather silly. So they respond to him by laughing, by making fun of him. No one really understands the or is willing to accept that this is really so momentous uh, an event, the death of God, as the madman is insisting. Um, perhaps it's worth saying a little bit about just that um, phrasing of God is dead and contrasting it with some other things that people may think that uh, Nietzsche's atheism amounts to. So it's one thing that's interesting about Nietzsche's comments on on God and, and his death in his works is that you won't find anywhere in Nietzsche a traditional philosophy of religion style argument that will be responding to um, arguments for faith in God, arguments for thinking that God does exist. Uh, you won't really find traditional philosophical arguments against the existence of God or the um, reasons that we might have for being Christian. What instead you have, and, and this is very, very much following in the footsteps of other naturalizing approaches to understanding the Christian faith that you find in the 19th century. He's he's by no means um, inventing something new by thinking of God in this way. He's treating God as and tre treating the object of Christian faith as a cultural phenomenon to be understood almost from a, a sociological point of view. This is what, when I said earlier that Nietzsche's training as a classicist, as someone who will um, st study cultures to understand how they operate sociologically, uh, this is the way in which he brings this to bear with his contemporaries. And Christianity is, is an example. His views on Christianity is an example of how he does this. So we'll notice that when, he said, when Nietzsche's madman says that God is dead, uh, this isn't to say, this isn't an example of someone who's trying to convince those around him that they shouldn't believe in God, that any of their reasons for thinking God exists turn out to be false. Um, he's rather trying to explain to everyone that you already no longer believe in the existence of God. You, you around me in the village, um, have already lost your faith in, in Christianity. Um, this is what he means by saying God is dead and we have killed him. Um, those are those um, that the madman is addressing and um, analogously those that Nietzsche takes himself to be addressing have already given up on their faith um, uh, as a result of uh, enlightenment um, resistance to uh, received wisdoms from tradition and what have you. But the thing that Nietzsche thinks his contemporaries and analogously the thing that the madman thinks his contemporaries haven't really appreciated is just what one would have to give up on if one were to consistently abandon Christian faith. The repercussions of um, no longer believing that God exists are much, much more consequential, Nietzsche thinks, than his contemporaries really have um, taken on board. So, so one prime example for this for Nietzsche is that Nietzsche thinks that um, the moral values that his contemporaries still adhere to. And these will be things like altruism, selflessness, uh, the value of pity, compassion, um, and thinking that contrasting values such as, or contrasting uh, virtues such as uh, selfishness or egoism or cruelty or violence and aggression, indifference to the pain of others, these are all things that Nietzsche thinks his contemporaries still adhere to um, but that they have, if you like, been bequeathed by um, Christianity. And Nietzsche's madman is trying to tell those around him that if you really do want to consistently give up on faith in Christianity and faith in the Christian God, then you need to consider whether you have reason anymore to adhere to these values too.
In short, Nietzsche and his madman think that the death of God will over time eventually lead people to realize that they haven't, by abandoning belief in the existence of God, they will eventually be abandoning a much broader set of concepts and values that make up um, modern European culture. And that is the consequence of the death of God that the madman is trying to warn people about. This is going to be a problem. What, what are you going to believe in if you no, no longer believe in the things that Christianity has supported? Um, one, partic one curious element of that passage that um, I often like to point out, particularly when I'm teaching th this part of the gay science, um, is that the madman, when he enters the village to address people and to warn them of the momentous consequences of the death of God, carries with him a lantern. Um, but Nietzsche also points out that um, it's broad daylight when he enters the village. So you can imagine this guy is in broad daylight entering with a lit lantern um, and everyone around him is just laughing at him. So who is this guy? Why does he have a lantern in broad daylight? Why is he telling us something we already know? We already know that God is dead. We don't believe in God anymore. So what? Um, it's it's not often acknowledged, this this element of the, um, the lantern being lit in broad daylight, but um, Stephen Mulhall, um, has written about this, about how, in, in his view, and I think he's right about this, the significance of this is that the madman understands something has happened that those around him haven't seen yet. And what the lantern indicates is that the madman understands that the light of the sun um, is very soon going to be extinguished. Um, actually, what he really understands is that the sun has already been extinguished. And that, you know, it's going to take us, what is it, something like six minutes for light to travel from the sun to the earth. It's going to take us some time before we know that something that has already happened has happened. Uh, we're not yet in a position to realize this has already happened. The, the madman with his little lantern is ready for this. He knows that this extinguishing of the light of the sun is coming. Um, and this is what is indicated by that. And of course, what this is, is a metaphor for thinking that, well, God has died, the sun is extinguished, and we might think that everything's going on as normal, but we're about to realize pretty soon that life cannot continue as it has previously. So in what you've said, is Nietzsche trying to warn people to not turn away from God, to not abandon the moral values that are associated with God? Is he trying to make them feel afraid or scared of a, of a world without God? Or is he trying to sort of encourage them to find new values and new, a new morality after, after God is dead and God is absent? I, I think it's certainly the latter. And so for one thing, Nietzsche wouldn't think that it's possible to put the genie back in the bottle once God is dead, once uh, our uh, once the consequences of, of enlightenment have reached a stage where sec uh, Europe has largely secularized to the extent that it had at his time, then there is no going back and there is no reviving Christian faith at that point. Um, but he also has reasons to think that even if that were possible, it is not something that he would want us to do. And perhaps we'll get a chance to, to talk about that if we talk more about his views on morality, but he certainly thinks that there are some things that are damaging about Christian concepts and values. And so in a way, there is a positive potential in the death of God. Um, what Nietzsche is concerned about is, well, really two things. So, so one thing he's concerned about is that, and th this really comes across, I think, most forcefully in the Madman passage, that his contemporaries are continuing with concepts and values that have lost their support and that he thinks this is an example of a, of a decadent culture uh, this is a christian culture is on its way out and yet what nietzsche is going to insist on is that we should really take seriously that there are all kinds of things that we think we can still continue with um, a faith in the value of truth um, a faith in the possibility of human rationality and a faith in moral values of, of good and evil, that he thinks that we, th these, are, um, these are dying concepts and values that need to be moved. We need to move beyond those. We need to transcend these. Um, and this is a, 
this this is a problem for Nietzsche because he thinks that his contemporaries don't really appreciate this, that they can continue with these things after the death of God. Um, this in itself, he thinks, is a problem. But the other problem that he's worried about is that um, if we do get to a stage or if his contemporaries will accept his view on this, then there is still work to be done. Um, what would be left if we were to accept that um, these elements of our culture are no longer something we can commit ourselves to could potentially be a um, axiologically bereft nihilism. So it'd be a culture where no one really believes in anything. No one really values anything. And Nietzsche doesn't think that this is a particularly attractive possibility either. And so uh, one other thing that I think if anyone knows anything about Nietzsche, they might remember him for this would be his concern for and about contemporary, uh, excuse me, modern European nihilism. The death of God can lead to people just continuing as they were, not realizing that um, this is not something they can really support anymore, or they could abandon everything they previously believed in. But if they're left with nothing, Nietzsche doesn't think this is a good scenario either. And so the what he's really doing here is trying to persuade everyone to take this as a serious possibility and to realize that the task then for anyone who's capable of this, and Nietzsche doesn't think that everyone is, um, he's by no means um, uh, a Democrat or an egalitarian about this. Um, for those who are capable of, of creating something new, um, Nietzsche wants to address those people and say, now is the time to do it. Um, we're going to have to replace Christianity and its complementary moral standards and culture, replace that with something else. Mm -hmm. So at this point, we could ask, how are his views on the death of God associated with his views on morality? And a follow up on that, what do you think Nietzsche would think about the modern world in terms of morality if he was around today? I'll, so I'll say something about what Nietzsche has to say about morality first and then see if, if I can think through how this relates to the death of God. His first thing to say about this is that when Nietzsche writes about morality, he will be writing about one of two things. And sometimes these things are conflated. Sometimes he'll write about morality in a broader sense. And morality here would just mean any ethical standard of good and bad, right and wrong, that we can use to evaluate or make judgments about human behavior and human lives and human action. So that's just going to be really any code of ethics. A morality would be a version of that. And then at other times he writes about morality in a much more narrow sense. And that would be the particular version of that broader sense of morality, code of ethics, that we find in his time that he ascribes to his contemporary culture. And that would be specifically for him um, a moral culture, uh, of a kind of morality that is based on Christian values. And so when I mentioned earlier, these values will be things like considering selflessness good and selfishness bad, considering, considering altruism to be good and considering egoism to be bad. These are what he considers to be Christian values, but also sometimes he'll refer to them as moral values. And that's morality in that narrower, culturally specific sense. So when Nietzsche writes about morality in that narrower sense, and that is really what I think most of the time people remember him for when they remember Nietzsche writing about morality, when Nietzsche describes himself as an immoralist, what he has in mind is his opposition to that culturally specific form of morality, Christian morality of his time. There are, I think, two interesting ways in which he analyzes that moral culture. So one is not so much his direct direct opposition to this, but, but rather the approach he takes to putting this morality into question. Sometimes he will, and in works like On the Genealogy of Morality, he will claim that his primary goal is to put into question the value of moral values. Um, this is the way he puts it. He wants to ask questions about the value of our values. And that he considers to be something that he's doing really for the first time in the history of European philosophy. And I'm not going to offer an opinion about just whether he's right about that. But there does seem to be something really rather distinctive if you compare his approach to morality in this way to 
the, the way that we're very familiar with in usual discussions of moral philosophy. By questioning the, the value of our values, the value of moral values, um, what he's doing is avoiding traditional moral philosophical questions of uh, what is morally permitted, what is morally impermissible, um, what would morality have to say about various decisions we have to make in various contexts. His, his moral philosophy is not a normative moral philosophy. It is, if you like, um, well, it, it is an attempt to take a step back from these questions and instead to, again, um, I've, I've characterized Nietzsche like this a couple of, uh, a couple of times, it is to take a, uh, is to treat morality as a sociological phenomenon, as something to be studied, as if Nietzsche were writing about 19th century Europe 2,000 years hence. Um, to take that view of an historian or of a sociologist, to think of morality as a culture to be analyzed in that way. What are the values that people hold within a moral culture? Why do they hold them? What kind of effect does that have on their behavior? Um, what do people really think when they make moral judgments of one another? These are some of the central features of Nietzsche's approach to taking a step back and questioning the value of, the, of moral values. But because, and this is the, the, the second important feature of Nietzsche's views on morality, because this isn't just um, a detached sociological study of the way that morality operates, it is also a question of, uh, of evaluation of morality. That's why he's asking about the value of moral values. Uh, he's also going to um, give us various reasons for thinking that once we have a good understanding of what morality really is in our time, we could come to see and we should come to see that it is damaging in various respects, that sometimes moral values um, are not bad for us. And he thinks that once we're in a position to be able to take a step back from them and analyze in that way, we'll be able to hopefully to, to see that. One reason to, to give an example of, of one of the reasons he'll give for thinking that moral values can be damaging. Um, he will repeatedly complain that one of the adverse side effects of a moral culture is that it discourages um, those few privileged individuals who have some kind of innate creative capacities to, again, achieve something great, um, whether that be through an exercise of power over other people, or whether it simply be just something like uh, an aesthetic capacity that they have, uh, an artistic excellence um, that they can um, uh, deploy in, in various ways. Nietzsche thinks that moral values of... Um, selflessness of altruism, benevolence, um, will discourage people from exercising other virtues and talents that they have. One way in which I like to think about this is that I see Nietzsche as someone who is a, a pluralist of value. He's someone who thinks that it makes sense for us to think about moral distinctions between good and bad and compare them to other ways in which we can distinguish good and bad human lives and human actions and what have you. And so, for example, another standard that we might invoke could be an aesthetic standard. Do people, are people achieving something of aesthetic worth with what they're doing? And although it might be common for us to think that moral standards are those that trump any other, they're the most important, um, so long as morality allows it, we can go ahead and achieve things of great aesthetic worth, that's fine. But if that's going to stop us, if that's going to transgress various moral duties, then we would usually think that morality trumps. And it's precisely this that Nietzsche wants to resist. He thinks that the result of this is very much that we will be left with a culture that is bereft of things of, of great value that will be valued on terms other than um, moral differences between good and bad. So that probably then gives us something of a framework to think about how Nietzsche may understand the, the modern world. Um, gosh, there's so much that we could say about this, but I think one thing that comes to mind is the extent to which it is still still the case that we consider moral judgments of right and wrong to have a privileged status. Again, we're, I think, in most contexts going to maintain that it is not a reasonable excuse for someone to say, well, I know what I did was morally wrong but at least it led me to create um, some great work of art. I made this amazing film. Um, I broke new ground in, um, uh, in, in painting or in theater. Um, and yes, I did that by 
um, being um, horribly unkind to people in the process. But at least I achieved something great worth. Now, you know, in some contexts, people will debate about whether that's a reasonable excuse. But I think a lot of us will probably not accept this as an excuse. That we don't think that um, it's correct to do this. And so we still somewhat adhere to this idea that um, where we have conflicts between different um, evaluative standards, the, the moral standards always going to win out. This is reflected in a great deal of moral philosophy, uh, but I think it's also reflected in a great deal of popular discourse as well. And I myself find it very difficult to disagree with that. Um, the challenge from Nietzsche, and this is why I think perhaps the challenge from Nietzsche still sticks with us today, is to give an account of why um, we why why we think that's the case. Why should it be that moral values trump all others? Um, what Nietzsche when Nietzsche again asks us to examine the value of our values. He wants us to examine the value of moral values in particular and give some accounting of why they are intrinsically so much more valuable than any other way in which we can evaluate what a person does. Um, so one answer to that question, what would Nietzsche think in the modern world, would be, well, he thinks we haven't, he, I imagine he would think that we haven't really progressed very far on that question of the value of moral values. Good. So coming to my final question, another very important and discussed concept in Nietzsche's work is the what he named the will to power. So what can we say about that? What did Nietzsche mean by the will to power? I think the easiest way of coming to understand the significance of this phrase in Nietzsche's work is to um, uh, without without trying to kind of give too long an answer to this, is to first appreciate that Nietzsche has something of a uh, what we might call a realist view of the motivations and the psychology behind what we do and how we interact with one another, we being just people generally. Um, one thing that's interesting about this is that the will to power is a phrase that's used by Nietzsche explicitly in that phrasing, enters in relatively late in his work. Um, and doesn't appear in the first three or four published texts of his. Um, but nonetheless, his uh, his realist approach to thinking about human motivation that will, among other things, identify power plays and attempts to um, establish oneself as in some way better or dominant over other people. This, as a description of a motivation, comes into his work very early on. It is something that he is attentive to, that he thinks is behind a lot of the things that we do um, from, um, yeah, from, a, from a very early stage in his writing. So the way that operates in his, in his psychology and his analysis of, of how we operate, uh, how we interact with one another, is to, um, a lot of the time, to take uh, phenomena that we think are generally quite flattering. Um, these could be things like... Um, as part of his critique of morality, it could be things like pity and compassion, and to suggest various ways in which the stories we tell ourselves that are, again, flattering about the reasons why we pity other people and what it means to pity, um, actually don't tell us the full truth about really what we're doing when we pity other people, and that instead that there could be something of um, a selfish motivation, or in particular an attempt to try to uh, um, perform one's own power in relation to other people when we pity. So maybe to take that example and explain it a little bit more. A will to power approach or a, a power focused um, psychological analysis of pity that Nietzsche will sometimes give us would be to say that one thing that a person who pities another gets from this attitude towards other people is a feeling of superiority. Um, Although this might not be what we tell other people when we say, I feel bad for you. Um, it is certainly the case that sometimes when we are less concerned with other people and more concerned with ourselves, when we do tell them that we pity them, it can be a way of demonstrating to them that, well, I'm not in your position. I'm much, I'm, I've done much better with regards to whatever it is we're talking about. Um, it can be, it, pitying someone else can be sometimes in some contexts be construed as an insult to that person. And the way that Nietzsche has 
what you might call a will to power psychology, would be to identify, again, those less flattering, um, perhaps more selfish, more self-indulgent motivations behind some of the interpersonal phenomena that will otherwise be explained away as morally acceptable, um, as flattering. Now, that's a restricted view of what the will to power means for Nietzsche, but, and that's restricted just to his psychology. But it is also the case that he will sometimes use this phrase to refer not just to the way that people interact with, with one another and not just uh, as a way of explaining human psychology, but also as a way of explaining um, something, elements of the world that are not reduced to human behavior. So sometimes he will describe um, the, uh, the way that power operates in the natural world. And sometimes he will describe the way that power operates in the nature of reality as such. But this is all, in, in my way of understanding this, still a part of his, what he would consider to be a realist approach to, and a, a non-flattering approach to explaining the way the natural world works, the way the biology works, and the way that um, reality as such works. All of this I see as perhaps best understood as his attempt to, to get away from the optimisms that we sometimes cling on to, to make us feel better about a cold, harsh reality that really doesn't afford um, the values that we really want the real really want reality to um, to stick to. So um, if he will describe um, different natural processes um, in terms of contestations between different forces that are trying to dominate one another, I read this as his attempt to try to stop us from hoping that the natural world might be um, has have some kind of order have some kind of adherence to uh, universal laws that allow us to, um, once we understand how it works in some circumstances, we're then going to be able to um, manipulate the world in various ways according to these laws. He's very resistant to this, and I think partly because he thinks that this is an overly optimistic um, and somewhat um, is, is an attitude that is denying the lack of control we really have over the world. And so that might be one reason for thinking that Nietzsche thinks that the natural world is also at bottom just things trying to overcome one another, things trying to dominate one another. And then the same is going to go for just the intrinsic nature of reality. It can be, um, it can be satisfying sometimes to think that reality is going to accord with the more flattering pictures of human behavior we have. That reality too will somehow allow the good guys to win and the bad guys to get their comeuppance. And this too is something, a form of um, moralizing optimism that Nietzsche uh, will resist. And I think this partly also explains why he will sometimes say that the world in itself is the will to power. This is what I take him to mean by that, that it, the world is um, resistant to that um, moralizing picture that we would, we would like the world to be, to be innocent and good. Um, and it really isn't. It's full of um, force and domination and overcoming. Dr. Bennett, thank you very much for your participation in the podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It was great talking to you. Thank you. You have just listened to Premise Podcast. Subscribe to Premise Podcast on YouTube and make sure to follow the podcast on Twitter and Facebook. The podcast is also available on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. Please consider supporting Premise Podcast on Patreon to help bring philosophy to the public. Thanks for listening.